Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. All right, we want to welcome everyone back in. We are in our second week of a book of the book of Genesis study. And we're kind of taking our time going through the text because I want to flush out some of these big themes and big ideas so that we can then see them, how they appear throughout the rest of the biblical text. So last week we did the scope of what's Genesis 1 and the story and how it's kind of structured and form- formulated and what's going on. We looked at the sea and chaos and understanding the biblical story in light of that ancient context. This week we want to look at the end of chapter 1, really verses 26 to 28, answering two big questions. Namely, what is the image of God? What does that mean to be made in God's image? And how does that affect us today? Which I think is absolutely significant. I think this is what the biblical story is about. And then the second thing is, well, who was God speaking to? And that question came up last week and I didn't answer it fully then. But who is God speaking to when he says, let us make man in our image? And we're going to broach the beginning of that conversation. It's gonna, your mind's going to go, and then and you might like be angry and, and resist and never come back. But at the same time, let's, let's just talk about it throw the idea out. And then as we go through Genesis, we're going to see that that coming back up because the answer to that question, I think the, what the answer to that question is, reappears several times later on. And we'll, we'll continue to bring that conversation back up in terms of who was God speaking to. And I think it actually is related to the image of God. It's also related to the serpent in the garden in chapter three and all that stuff also. So, so let's go to chapter one, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Excellent. So one of the things that we really need to pay attention to, and it'll be, I'll just keep doing it. So it's going to, I'm going to help you with it, but is words and the repetition of those words. And so you have to pay very careful attention. So we looked last week and said, look, in Genesis chapter one, and God said, and God said, and God said, all the days of Genesis seem to begin with, and God said. And all the days of Genesis 1 seem to end with, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then when we look at that and we see the the way the author uses repetition, we realize, oh, well, what do you do with verses 1 and 2? Because verse 3 is the start of day number 1. Because, and God said, that starts the day. And we notice that there's a couple of times where where it says, and God said, and and it's in the middle of a day. And we know it's the middle of a day because the day hasn't ended yet, because the day ends with, and there was morning, and there was evening. The, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. So the author's helping us follow the structure there. And we talked a little bit about chapter one, verses one and two last week. There's chaos. It's a watery chaos. Water is the enemy or, or the opposition. The dragons live in there. The beasts live in there. And God's going to subdue it and form the land. And of course, he separated the waters above from the waters below. So a vertical separation. And they separated the water from the land. What the, the seas and made the land separate. So a horizontal separation there. Okay, now I can, I can create. So we kind of looked at some of those things. We've also noted for those of you that have been with us that in Exodus chapter one begins with the Israelites being in the land of Goshen, which is the land of delight, which reminds you of Eden perhaps. 
and they were being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And because they were doing that, Pharaoh's going, hey, they're going to become too numerous for me, for us. And so that's his threat to Pharaoh. So you see, they are, this language is going to continue to pervade the story. And you're supposed to be realizing that you're supposed to be reading the story in light of that. The repetition of these things kind of then help us understand the story. And so being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth becomes this thing's repeat, repeated. As we look at Genesis chapter 1, 24 to 31, which I put this on the notes that I provided for you. There's five elements in the formation of mankind. God blesses them, which he blessed others also, not just mankind. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply, which he did also with the birds of the air and, and the uh, uh, creatures in the sea in, chapter, in the day number five. He tells them to fill the earth, but he also adds to subdue the earth and to rule over the earth. So there's two things. We have to figure out what does subdue mean and what does uh, rule over mean, which I think are actually really important also. And then I gave you a whole bunch of examples where this language continues to reappear throughout the biblical text. And we're not going to look at them tonight, but just note, if you're looking at the notes, it's in, it's in the Noah story. It's in the Abraham story, several times in the Abraham story. It's in the Isaac story. It's in the Jacob story. It's the story of, of Israel in Exodus chapter one. It's in the book of Numbers. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. It's in, even the, it's in, in the Psalms. This language becomes really central to, to the whole biblical story. So that's the first thing. Adam fails. That's the next thing on the notes. And so Noah's told, okay, you do it, Noah. And then Abraham, you do it. And then Isaac, you do it. And then Jacob. If you read the Noah story, then we're going to get there. If you read the Noah story as light of God starting over again. Okay, that's, here we go. We're going to start all over again. So Noah, here you go. So let's, let's actually just look at that really briefly, if you want. Uh, Genesis 9, uh, verse 1 and verse 7. The covenant with Noah. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you be fruitful and multiply or abound on the earth and multiply in it. Very good. And note even verse six, by the way, it says, oh, you, if someone sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Because what? Because in the image of God, he made man. Oh, that's Genesis one again. So this language in the book of Genesis is just constantly going to be going backwards to the Genesis 1 story. So we, if we understand the Genesis 1, and I think one, 1, 2, and 3 story well, then the rest of the Bible is going to start to open up because the entire biblical story is resonating back to this story and back to what's going on. So that even in the book of Revelation, you've got a dragon who is the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Oh, there you go. it's a serpent story. And, and you, Revelation chapter 12, uh, Jesus goes into the garden to pray the night before he's crucified. And that's where he's arrested you constantly see this imagery going through the biblical story. Does that make sense? Okay, very good. So the, the creation of mankind. Now the creation of mankind has some in interesting things too. This is letter A in the notes. And it says, all of a sudden the, ch the text changes from let there be to let us make. And that raises the question, well, okay, who's God speaking to? And I'm not gonna answer that just yet. And then there's a repetition. God created man, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the first thing to, to note, by the way, is whoever he's speaking to, they don't actually assist him in the work because he actually does it himself. So he says, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He made them. And then, the, of course, the next thing is he adds subdue and rule over. So letter B has these two lines. It says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And I put down in the notes, I probably should explain this. Uh, number one, Hebrew parallelism, question mark. And if that's true, there's no difference between the two terms. Isaiah 44, verse 1. 
So if you remember the, the story in the, in the book of Genesis, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name is changed to, anybody know? His name gets changed to? Israel. 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 He wrestles with Israel. God. Yeah, Israel. There you go. So look at Isaiah 44, verse 1. Now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. It's the same person. Although technically he's referring to the whole nation of Israel, but he's calling the whole nation of Israel Jacob. Hebrew poetry will always, almost always do this. Sometimes it gets more complicated. Sometimes there's three lines, but basically the first two lines repeat them one another. And notice the repetition here is my servant in the first line and my chosen one in the second line. My servant and my chosen one are the same, same group of people to whom I'm addressing. So the question then is, is Genesis 1 using Hebrew parallelism when it says in our image and in our likeness? Is image and likeness the same? And I'm just going to keep it simple by saying, yes, it is. They're used interchangeably later on. Next point, and that's this. And this is one of the key points. Letter C, all are made in God's image. And I'm going to explain to you why that's so important here in a few minutes. All are made in God's image. All mankind, male and female, he made them in his image. To be human is to bear God's image. Now, what we'll get into later, and let me just touch on it now, and I think, I'm, and we might even get onto this a little bit tonight, but maybe not, but maybe it'll come up in chapter three or, or following. When we might say when Adam and Eve sin, when they fall in chapter three, they mar the image of God. They fail to fulfill what the image of God means. And in a sense that when we repent and come to Christ, we begin again to be image bearers. I mean, we're still image bearers because we're still, we have that potentiality, but we're not fulfilling it until we come back to Christ. Okay. So let me see if I can explain that. To bear God's image, I'm going to argue, and I think the biblical text bears this out, is a role it's a task. It's a job description. So one of the questions that I think it came up a little bit last week was, well, we can't be made in God's physical image because God is spirit, John chapter four, verse 24. And maybe the best way to, to answer that now would be this. Let's go to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter three. All right, so the ancient Near East means that the, the Near Eastern world in the ancient context, meaning we're looking at a thousand BC to 2000 BC, maybe no, you know, maybe 600 BC might be your cutoff date somewhere around that. So 600 BC and earlier. So the time of Abraham, the time of David, the time of uh, obviously Moses and uh, up until maybe the Babylonian conquest. In the ancient Near Eastern world, this is what, this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold. And by the way, what's, what's the numbers in here? the height of which was 60 cubits and six cubits. And I hope your Bibles actually use that, use 60 and six because it's 66. And there's another six, by the way, in verse five. The moment that you hear the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, six instruments, six, six, six. And yes, that's, that is there. It's meant to be. When Solomon becomes the king and he imposes taxation on the people you know how much gold he had 666 so the biblical writers are telling you solomon's taxation of the people and his 
accumulating gold really bad. In fact, evil. We might even say satanically evil if we want to go that far. But I think that is indeed the case here. The biblical author is telling you, I want you to understand. I'm telling you already what you need to know about this image. It's bad. Hey, Rob. Yep. Go ahead, please. Question. Um, obvious version says 90. Yeah. Okay. So because a cubit is one and a half. 90 and nine. Yeah. I'm 90 sorry. and nine. A cubit, a cubit uh, is an arm length from your elbow to your forefinger. And it's yeah. basically one and a half feet. So if, and I'll say 90 feet by nine feet. That's 60 cubits by six cubits. Wow. Makes sense. You can't do that. That's why I'm like, biblical writers, the translators can't do that because the number in, in its original language is so significant. You're like, well, we don't know what a cubit is. Doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's irrelevant what the cubit is. The significance of it is six and six and another six later on below. When they do that in the book of Revelation, it's like, no, you can't do that. It's like not, you know, it's like 1600 miles. Like, no, it's not 1600 miles. It's 12,000 stadia and 12 is a significant number, stuff like that. So don't get me going on that topic now. Okay. Right, here, 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 here. Thanks. For the yeah, you're welcome. No, no problem. All right. So here's what happens. In the ancient world, Egyptian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Assyrian empire, these were mega empires. So they stretched from Iran through Iraq, Syria, down to uh, Israel, and even in, for a little while, the northern parts of, of Egypt. The extent of the Babylonian empire was significant. Now, you have to remember the emperor himself was God incarnate. That's the, the, whether it's the pharaoh in Egypt or the king of Babylon, they are God in the flesh, but they don't have TVs, they don't have satellites, they don't have cell phones. They, if you live in Israel, you pay taxes and you are a servant of the king of Babylon. Well, what does he look like? And they would put up images all around the empire so that no matter where you go, you know who it is that your king and your Lord is. These images were everywhere around the empire. That's who your God is because that's who your emperor is. So if you go back to Genesis one, this is, in my opinion, this is like really easy. And I'm like a, a new Testament guy. So if I can figure this out, anybody, it should be pretty obvious. God is simply putting humans as his image bearers. And the way of, of doing it is not in a physical image, but to say, who is, who's the God of this place? Look at that person. Humanity's job was to image God, meaning to manifest God's presence. And, and we can cut to the New Testament really quickly on this one. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Because God is love. And when we love, what are we doing? We're making God known. That means we're bearing his image. That's what image bearing is. Image bearing is to manifest God's presence, his rule, his kingship. Remember, God's the king that makes humanity. And here's the significance. So I went back up to letter C. All are made in God's image. That is a radically different concept that existed anywhere in the ancient world because only Pharaoh was made in God's image. Only the Nebuchadnezzar was made in God's image. And now the biblical story is saying all human, humankind is made in God's image. In an ancient Near Eastern context, the idea of an image bearer would have meant you replicate the king, i.e. the God. You are the king and you therefore represent the God of, of the nation or of the empire. 
the biblical story is saying, yeah, that's exactly right. We represent the God and that makes us kings and queens and we're all royalty. And I'm going to come back to this a little bit at the, at the end. Does that make sense? So this is really, really, really significant. And especially, remember the, the Genesis story, an argument against the gods of Egypt, against the gods of Babylon, against the gods of Assyria. It's against these, it's fitting into the, to their narratives, how they told stories. So they had chaos monsters and chaos had to be resolved and, and, and the God has to solve the chaos. And, all, and th that's what they did. But the biblical author is saying, well, yeah, that's our God did that too. But here's the deal. First off, he made us all in his image. And that makes you Israelite slaves who just come out of Egypt and slavery makes you image bearers. And it makes uh, you big people who are captive to the Babylonian emperor, it makes you image bearers. And so it's very significant. So the, my answer would be this, to bear God's image is what the kingdom, if we think of this in the kingdom of God type of language, the kingdom of God is what, where God reigns. And then God reigns through us to the rest of creation now. And that's what it means to be an image bearer. And that's why Paul's going to use image language in Genesis and Colossians 1, Colossians 2, Colossians 3. And I know I'm going a little bit too quickly on that, but I'll, I'll hopefully come back to it later. It simply represents our role as making God known. And it's manifested most often when we love one another. So letter D. Romans 8, 29, Colossians 3, 18, Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, and Colossians 3, 10, all use the language of image bearing. And the idea is that one is becoming the image of God through the process of salvation. So let, let's go ahead and look at a couple of those references right now, because I think this is significant. And tell me if you have any questions or I'm going too slow or going too fast. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There you go. Notice what Paul's saying, right? And we won't get into the theology of predestination, all that good stuff is. We're being conformed to the image of his son. This is image of God language. Make sense? Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I've got it. Thank you, Jackie. All of us gazing with unveiled faces on the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as from the Lord who is the spirit. Yeah. And so glory will be this really important word that we'll get to later on. But glory has to do with the, the presence of God. The, some of you might know the word Shekinah, the, the, the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. Where God was, that's his glorious presence. And the answer is we're being made back into that image now. Ephesians 4, 23 and 24. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Put in the new self, in verse 24, in the likeness of God. In the likeness of God. There's that image likeness. And I think if image and likeness are just two, two sides of the same coin. Now go to Colossians 3. And I won't spend too much time on this, but, we, but it's, it's, it's worth bearing in mind. 
So in Colossians 3, and there's this long argument in the book of Colossians. I think we did Colossians not too long ago for some, for some in the, one of the studies that we did. Notice verse 1 of Colossians 3. If you've been raised with Christ, so there you go. And notice he says, we have been raised with Christ. And this is old self, new self language. Put off your old self and put on the new self. And what's the new self? Verse uh, 5. Consider your, your, the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. That, that's the old self. We're dead to that. Put aside verse 8, put aside uh, abusive uh, language, uh, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Verse 9, don't even lie to one another. And then what he says in verse 10, and put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So the idea is that in Christ now, we are able to image God by being like him. And of course, imaging and being like him ultimately is manifested in love. I mean, obviously love has this larger category, right? Because it goes on to say, there's no distinction. Verse 12, well, we've been chosen, therefore be holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. This is all what the image of God means. It means put on a heart of compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Uh, and then, of course, it's in, in love. And as we love, we are imitating God. And that's what ultimately, so who is the creator of this world? Oh, it's, see how that person laid down their life for that other person over there? Ah, that's what God does. Does that make sense? So in Christ, we, can there, we, we are therefore now bearing God's, now that doesn't mean, by the way, that a non-Christian can't imitate God, because they can. A, a non-Christian can love selflessly. A non-Christian can be humble. A non-Christian could be but when we do this in order to make Christ known, that actually means we're fulfilling the role that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. And that's why I think this is so important is because Christian character matters. Christian lifestyle matters. It's the, it's the fulfilling of the, of the mandate of being image bearers and making him known. Does that make sense? Now, the next part of this becomes significant. So I've already noted that to be an image bearer means actually to be a king or a queen because that's what Pharaoh was, that's what the king of Babylon was. And then look at the next language that's used. Let them rule and let them subdue. And of course, rule has this language of ruling, of subdue the earth. May suggest no more than the task of agriculture. We'll get to that in chapter two. To rule the earth is to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. And here's the key. God delegates to mankind his own kingly authority. This is what the role of image bearers is. God's kingly authority is given to us. By the way, Adam does that in chapter two when he names the animals. To name something means to have authority over them. And so Adam is actually exercising this kingliness, this image bearingness uh, over the animals in Genesis chapter two. Right, I'm going to skip down a little bit because I want to, I want to make sure we get the number of passages and I, I think I'm going to run out of time already to get to, and I know you guys want to know about this, um, let us make man in our image part. Here we go. So uh, be fruitful, multiply. We discussed that already. Commission, verse number two is all the verses that we already listed above. It was very good at the end of chapter, at the end of the sixth day. So now here's my, here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a, a number of verses. I'll repeat them. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm going to add, I'll add these to the show notes. So you know, you know where to go. And what I want to show you is, is that being an image bearer has to do with being a king and a priest. So let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. To be an image bearer, we've already discussed, has the idea of being a king and queens. It means to rule over the creation and subdue it. 
what we're going to notice next time when we get together, it might be, it might take us a couple weeks to get through this part of Genesis too, but that Eden was a temple. It's where God dwelt. God resided in Eden. And that makes us priests. And Adam and Eve are actually described as priests taking care of God's temple. We, we call them gardeners, but the language for gardening is actually not gardening language. The language in Genesis 2, I think it's verse 16, 15 or 16. The language in Genesis 2 is the language of what a priest does in the temple. So Adam and Eve are caretakers in God's garden temple, and therefore they're priests. The image bearing of God, actually, is that we are to be kings and priests. And so let me, let's look through a whole bunch of verses now where the Bible just iterates or reiterates this thought of humanity as being kings and priests. So we're going to start in Revelation. That's the best place to go anyways. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And if it's in Revelation chapter 1, the first eight verses, then this is something that's going to be a major theme in the book of Revelation because the first eight verses are your introduction, your prologue to the entire book of Revelation. So if somebody want to read Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And has appointed us as a kingdom, as priests, serving his God and Father. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. All right. He's made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Okay, now chapter 5, Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. And those, Revelation chapter 1 says he's already made us this. And then we get to the great uh, scene in Revelation chapter 5. Somebody want to read verses 9 and 10? I'll read it. Thank you. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. There you go. Kings and priests and their reigning upon the earth. Revelation chapter 20. And we're not going to discuss the millennium. So here we go. It's the millennium verse, but we're not going to discuss it. We're just looking for this theme. Revelation 20, verse 4. Somebody want to read it? I can read it. I Thank saw you. thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony, because Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. All right, and go ahead and read verse six also, if you don't mind, Chris. Blessed and holy are those who, are, who share in the first resurrection. <clears throat> the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. There you go. Again, kings and priests reigning. This is the entire theme of the book of Revelation. This is what God's going to do. What, which means what? Revelation is saying that what God's going to do is he's going to fulfill what Eden was supposed to do. What Adam and Eve were supposed to do in Eden is going to be fulfilled in what we might call the eschaton or the end or whatever you want to call that. Now, let's go to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. But notice that Exodus 19 is the chapter before Exodus 20. I'm brilliant. I didn't take a PhD really? to figure that out. That's right. But Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Right. So this is the introduction to the Ten Commandments. They've just been brought out of Egyptian slavery. 
They've been brought to the Mount Sinai. Moses is going to go up to Mount Sinai. He's going to get the law. So, so now look, look at Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. This is the formative passage about the description of the Israelites after they've been rescued from slavery. This is the formative passage saying, this is your identity. So verses 4 through 6. I'm there. Thank you. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. A priestly kingdom and a holy nation, kings and priests. Israel's role, if we just go through the entirety of the Old Testament, we'd see this come up over and over again was to be God's witnesses, to make him known. And as doing so, they would rule like God rules. We might want to define priest. A priest is a, is a mediator, someone that goes between two parties. It's between God and humanity, right? Or, or God and the creation, you might say. That's what a, a priest is. It's, it's a mediator. Now, in the eternity, when we're functioning as priests, it's because we're still in the presence of God. Now, a, a priest is someone who's in the presence of God and then takes that presence of God to the rest of creation. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. And of course, God rescues them from slavery and says, okay, let's try it again. And of course, we know what happens. They fail again. So the story is going to continuously go on. Okay, I'm going to make my kings and my priests and they're going to do this. Oh, okay. Let's try it with these guys. Okay, Noah. Oh, didn't work again. All right, let's start with Adam, Abraham. Didn't, it's a story of saying, it's, oh, no, almost Moses. Oh, Moses is so close. Not quite. And it's going to go, David. Oh, nope, not David either. And then Jesus. Ah, Jesus. Bingo. Jesus fulfills the role of being kings and priests. Now, we're leaving the word prophet out of this conversation. Because in Genesis 1, there's no need to be a prophet. Because a prophet, of course, speaks correction to the people when they fall in error and speaking God's words. But all the people are supposed to be kings and priests, so there's no need for a prophet. But once you get to the book of Revelation, there's no need for the... Once you get to the second coming of Jesus, there's no need for prophets any longer either. Now let's go to... Well, while we're there, actually, Exodus chapter 17, since we're there. There's a really neat story. Basically, what's going to happen is Moses is going to hold up his hands, and whenever Moses holds up, holds up his arms, they're victorious in battle. Remember that story? Mm -hmm. But then Moses' arms get heavy, and he can't hold them up any longer. So it says in verse uh, 12, Moses' hands were heavy. He took a stone and put it under him, and he sat upon it. Then verse 12, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands. Well, do you know who Aaron is? You might know who Aaron is. Who's Aaron? His brother. Aaron's his brother. And that means, and I don't know if you know this or not, but, but Moses is actually a descendant of the Levites. Aaron's a priest. Now her, well, we're actually not completely told on her who her is. It appears that her is his sister's son. That's his nephew, Mir Miriam's son. But Miriam married a member of the, Jew of the clan of Judah. In other words, her is a member of the tribe of Judah. And if the Levites are the priestly tribe, Judah's the tribe of royal. That's the king. royal tribe, the tribe of the king. So Moses' arms are being held up by who? 
by a king and a priest. And so this is all, this is just going on throughout the story. Kings, priests, kings, priests, kings, priests. I won't take the time now because we're running low on time. But in Zechariah 4, there's these two olive trees and these two lampstands. One's Zerubbabel and one's Haggai, the king and the priest. It just goes on and on and on and on. Now let's go to Mark chapter 10, 42 through 45. Thank you very much, Jess. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is establishing, hey, you guys are going to be kings and queens, and this is how we're going to rule. We're not going to rule like the Gentiles do. They lord over those in authority, but not so among you. Okay, one more verse on this theme. Actually, I'm going to give you two more verses. Uh, Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. Luke 22, 29 and 30. Somebody want to read it? I got it. Thank you. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There you go. And the passage that we just read in, in Mark 10 is actually in verses 24 through 20, 27, 28. And notice also verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Oh, yeah, that's Eden. That's that's the serpent getting it. Hey, you guys are going to be kings and you're going to rule. Oh, but guess what the serpent's going to do? He's going to try to interfere with this. One more verse here. And you may know already where I'm going to go. But first Peter chapter two, verse nine. I know we've read it before. First uh, Peter two, verse nine. We could have just read this one verse and be kind of done with it. But it's good enough to read all the other verses too, and kind of get the idea that this is a dominant theme over and over again. Somebody want to read verse first Peter two, nine. I can. Thank you. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, notice the verse here. It has all the things that we've been talking about. It says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's almost verbatim from Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. The call of Israel was to be a, a chosen race, a royal priest and a holy nation. And look at the task so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Your job is to make God known. That goes back to what I said about being an image bearer is a role. It's a, it's a job description. It's a responsibility. It's to manifest God's presence and God's likeness. Therefore, i.e., when we love one another as Christ loved us, we are making God known, or as the book of Luke says in Luke 6, you'll be sons of the most high. But notice also in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2 verse 4 says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, by choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, verse 5, are living stones, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So verse 4 is talking about Jesus. He's a living stone. He was rejected by men, but he's choice and precious inside of God. And then look at verse five. And you also are living stones. Ah, what Jesus was, you are, at least in role and responsibility. 
Jesus' role and responsibility was to do what? And what's the stone? It's the stone of the building of the temple. It's the first, it's the cornerstone of the construction of the temple. Jesus is that temple. Oh, and guess what? So also are you. You're living stones. You're, you're part of this new temple. Being an image bearer means to make God known. It means to reflect God in his glory to, to his creation. That it's a role, it's a responsibility, it's a title, it's a privilege. And therefore, it kind of falls under the categories of being kings and priests. And the key in the Genesis account is all of humanity is that, not just the king or not just the pharaoh or not just the king of Babylon, etc. Now, a couple minutes of what we have left here. Who is he speaking to? All right, here we go. Uh, well, he was speaking to... So let's go to Job verse 38, chapter 38. Job chapter 38. I'm going to show you a couple of references. Four through seven, Job 38, four through seven. If someone wants to read this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what? its base is sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Most of your translations probably have something in verse seven. Tell me if this says something other than sons of God. Does it say heavenly, anything? Heavenly beings. Okay. Oh, very good. Heavenly beings. Very good. Anybody else have something different? The Hebrew says Elohim. But we discussed last week, Elohim it just means God. Although when it refers to other beings, it might be translated as gods, plural. L is singular. L-O, L-E-L-O-H means two. Elohim, the em means plural. That means three or more. And notice what it says. In Genesis 38, it says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In verse seven, and now God's speaking to Job. So Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Like, no, you weren't there, Job. Uh, were you there when I stretched the, the measurements and who stretched out its line? No, you weren't there. Were you there when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? No, you weren't there. But guess what? The Elohim were. <laughs> According to verse seven, the Elohim were there. Yeah. And Job, you weren't there when the Elohim were there. But the Elohim were there. Elohim, it's God's heavenly counsel. And let me see if I can explain it this way. The creation of humanity was, I'm going to create humans because I'm going to rule through them. God has no problem sharing his rule. God's totally sovereign. There's no denying that. But he makes Adam and Eve to rule over his creation for him. God's sharing in his sovereignty. And he's sharing in his rulership. Well, that's what the Elohim are. It's his heavenly council. And humanity was created actually to join that heavenly council. And this will be something that we'll investigate as we keep going through the book of Genesis. Humanity was supposed to actually join that heavenly council. Well, one of the members of the heavenly council comes down as the serpent and says, oh, mm -hmm. no. This heavenly council basically goes bad. Now, if you want to make it simple, you can just call them demons. That's fine. Because Paul says, you worship those who were by nature, not gods. And referring to other gods as demons. That's fine. There's one supreme God. 
but there are other gods. Now, to clarify ourselves for us, because I know we have uh, Tim here on, on the call, right? Here we go. They're not gods in the sense that they're eternal. There's only one God. So the whole I, the, the theme of Isaiah over and over and over and over again is, I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no God. I am eternal. I, he's the one who is, who was, and who is to come. There's only one supreme God. But there is a council of gods. And we know this from a couple of ways. Number one, the ancient Near Eastern world all believe this. Every ancient Near Eastern creation account we have, the Ugaritic, they're all of them. They all have this divine council. And this divine council was there was one supreme God and there's a whole bunch of other gods. Now, the biblical story comes along and says there's one supreme God and he's actually the eternal one and he's all powerful. The ancient Near Eastern gods didn't have that. There, there are just different levels of gods and there's one supreme God. The biblical God says, no, I'm Yahweh, I'm eternal, I'm the sole one, I'm the only, and I created all these things out of nothing, although Genesis ain't saying that yet, as we discussed. And then God says, hey guys, let's make man in our image, in the image of the gods, in other words. But technically, he's only making man, because now why would it be in the image of the gods? Because the gods are ruling. Yahweh rules through them. Does that make I don't, I don't you're like I'm not comfortable with this. Rob, That's okay. Rob? Yes, go ahead. Is, is is there any place for the Trinity in this discussion at all? Not here. No. And the reason why is this. The Trinity is clearly concept. a New Testament concept. That's it's, it's, concept. Yeah, it, it doesn't it obviously that we believe in the Trinity is eternal, the Father Son but they had no concept of it. And, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit were existing at this time. Absolutely. The point is, they didn't know that. Yes. And so Moses couldn't have been writing about that because he didn't know that <laughs> or understand that. And the people to whom he was writing would never have understood that. In other words, it's a really good idea to say, hey, let's take Genesis 1 say he's talking to the Trinity because it's plural. Let us make man. And then it says in the image of God, singular, ah, plural, singular, perfect. No problem at all. And that's been the, the most common go-to argument for Christians, especially because we're just not comfortable with other gods existing. And what I'm saying is other gods exist. In other words, God didn't just create Adam and Eve down here on earth. There were other beings he made also. They're created beings. They're called yeah. the council of the gods, Elohim. Yeah. They're going to come into the story in chapter six. Oh, Patty's on the call now. Here you go. They're going to come <laughs> into the story in chapter six because they're going to come down and have sex with women. Mm-hmm. That's who the sons of God are. Yeah, go ahead. So, Rob, can I ask you, what, who were these gods ruling over if mankind and the earth haven't been made? I'm not sure I understand your question here. Here, Say it again. Well, you said that the, the gods, not God, the gods yeah. were um, ruling over yeah. something. Well, over... what were they ruling over if mankind hadn't been made in God's image in order to rule over the earth? Were, were they ruling over something else, somewhere else? I guess you would say they are God's um, accomplices in his creation. So when God creates, the, the, the council of the gods was there also. God, and of who... course, note the first six days, God's doing this all by himself. God said, God said, God said, God said. And it's like, hey, guys, let's make man in our image. And all of a sudden now the, the council of the gods are present. And again, let me just reiterate, the reason why we are certain of this, obviously we have a bunch of other verses that we can get to here throughout the biblical text that we can look at that all have this, this theme playing on is this is universal amongst the ancient world. This is how, the, 
you might have heard Baal, or it's, it's Baal in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Baal. Baal is the, is the supreme god of the Canaanites. Well, Baal was actually the co-ruler to El in Ugaritic. So Ugaritic is the most is the closest language to Hebrew. And they were it's very obviously the Canaanites and the Israelites kind of lived very close proximity. So this is actually the the Ugaritic tablets that we have, and there's a massive library that, we, that they found in, of Ugaritic tablets. The Ugaritic tablets are the closest kin to the biblical story. And in the Ugaritic, the supreme ruler was named El, just E-L, Elohim was just it's singular, and his co-ruler was Baal. And the biblical text comes along and says, ah, Baal, no, not going to work that way. He is not a co-ruler to Yahweh. Yahweh is supreme above all the gods. But think about this. In the ancient world, the gods were in control of the sun. The gods were in control of the rain. The gods, this is just the world that they live in. And you're like, well, I'm not sure I like this. And here's the next thing. That's this. God doesn't come down and straighten everything out and give us this total understanding of everything. He gives us what we can understand for the day. And then over time, he progressively more and more and more and more and more. And so as we go through the story, we begin to realize, oh, okay, God is love, as some of you have commented. And in order for God to exist eternally, he had to exist in plurality because who else is he loving? The other gods don't exist. They are created. So let me be clear. They I mean, are created beings. They're fallen. That They cause all kinds of havoc in Genesis 6. Yeah. The Satan is one of them. Satan right? The Satan, right? And Satan is not a personal name, but later and becomes one in the book of Revelation. He's never Satan like a personal name. I, I wouldn't say like the Chris or the Gracie. You would say Gracie or Chris. He's called the Satan, which means it's not a name. It's a title. It's a role. They're, they're all created beings, but they're there at the beginning of the creation. So are these gods in quotes, are they the angels that more commonly... Mm-hmm. Well, you might, they're different than the class that they're, okay, I think I understand your question. No, they're not angels. Okay, great. They're, they're, Good. they're not angels. No, no. Right, right, right. Good. My thing is, is if the ancient of days, if you will, is he, if he is the almighty, mm-hmm. he is mm-hmm. the, the, yes. the beginning and the end. If he created the Satan and that's the heavenly council, and I don't want to try and start extrapolating, but in the, the Genesis account, all the slimy, creepy things that were on the ground, he created those, but he created them before man and woman. Now, Satan isn't necessarily, or the Satan isn't necessarily solely a slimy, creepy thing, but that's what he entered into to have his presence in the garden, right? So that's the delineation. Okay. Yeah. But he's by no means an equal in power, equal no. in majesty, none of that. He's right, a creative right, right. being. Right. It's a council. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Rob? Yeah. yeah, please. Okay. You, we out. You know the night angels. <laughs> then I was going to ask, what? How many layers of heaven is there for these people, these councils to be? How they're set up? Yeah. You so governmental. The, in in Ugaritic, and it seems also in the biblical text, there's three. I wouldn't say heavens, but there's three layers. In Ugaritic. The highest layer was El and Baal. In the biblical text, the highest layer is Yahweh only. That's just, there's just no question about it. Yahweh is all by himself. Then there are the sons of God. Mm-hmm. And that's this divine council. 
And then there's these messengers that you might call angels. So that answers Jerry's question. Angels are not sons of God. Sons of God are not angels. For our sakes, I am not denying the Trinity. I'm not denying that God's the only God. I'm simply saying there's another level of beings out there that the biblical story is absolutely building on. I believe that. that. Yeah, that layer of beings are called sons of God, and they're not angels. So most of us have been raised, but there's God, there's angels, and there's humans. And so you're like, well, where do I put these beings? Like, well, you have to open up another can because there's, there's another, another thing. So let's look one more verse here. Psalm 82. <laughs> I know it's already late. I told you we would stop. So here we go. Psalm 82. So Psalm 82. God takes his stand. By the way, your translations are not always going to help us because your translations know that this whole idea is a problem for evangelicals and for Christians. And they're like, okay, they're going to steer away from it. So they're going to like not use Elohim. They're going to use something else uh, and, and maybe even make you think it's angels or something like that. Probably might be a, a assembly. He judges in the midst of rulers. And that word is Elohim mm-hmm. in verse one. So he judges in the, in the midst of the Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly? And no, again, the Elohim, God rules through them. He, he created them to, to, to be co-rulers with him. But look at what they're doing. You're judging unjustly. You're showing partiality to the wicked. And God says to them, vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice uh, to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue, rescue the weak and the needy. Uh, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods. You're sons of the most but high. You're all, uh, and all sons of the most high. Nevertheless, you'll die like mere men. And fall yeah. like any other other princess. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for it is those, uh, for it is you who possess all the nations. There's another example, and there's there's a number of examples like this. And I know that Tim and I probably have, we can have a good conversation. And if you want to stay online afterwards for a few minutes, Tim, because this is one of those like Jehovah's Witnesses will use verses like this. As I see, Jesus is a God because there are plenty of other gods, and the answer is, but Jesus is clearly equated with Yahweh, and He's the only one in that category. That's the clear distinction. That Jesus is, that God's the only one in his category, sovereign, holy, eternal, et cetera, et cetera. And if you want to say there's only one God, fine, no problem. There's only one God. The question is, is Jesus equated with the sons of God, making him evil? Or is Jesus in the category of Yahweh? And the answer is clear. He's in the category of Yahweh. So uh, makes sense. Do you want to look up Psalm 89 later on? Uh, Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. There you go. This is divine counsel. That's Psalm 89, verses 6 through 8. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Exodus 15. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Deuteronomy 3, verse 24. Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such mighty works as, as yours? And we might say, well, there's no God. Well, that's not what they thought in the, in the ancient world. So, yeah. Hey, right. Rob. Yep. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Is that a reference to the son with whom I am well pleased versus the other sons who kind of bum me out or disappointment or? No, because I think we would begin to understand now the Trinity being revealed in the New Testament. And clearly Jesus is in a different category. So I would not put Jesus in the same category as the other sons. Okay. That's right. Yep. Very good question though. Very, very good question. That's right. Um, Are these... Is, is there just one of these gods left in the form of the Satan or are they still hanging out here? They're still hanging out. Yeah, they're still there. They're still, yeah, they will fall under judgment. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. 
So, okay, there is this divine counsel. And the whole idea, again, to set it again, God rules through others. He rules through humanity. He has no problem delegating his, his, rule, his rule. And that's apparently what the, the sons of God and the, the Elohim are. Michael Heiser, and I know that's the book Patty was, read, was reading a couple months ago when you asked us about the book. Michael Heiser wrote a book on this. I think his book's called The Unseen Realm. He talks a lot about it. He does a really good job of saying there's this unseen realm of these gods. That's, this is just simply the way it is. And he does a really good job of unpacking it. I preached the book of Genesis and I did not bring this up once because there's no way I can bring it up in a sermon. It's too much to handle. People in the congregation will go, I don't know what to do with this. You can't preach this. And so now this is why it's so absent from our conversations because people don't even know what to do with it. And again, the other thing is some of this is new. I mean, these discoveries are less than hundred years old. And so now we're like, oh, this is opening up the biblical world. Okay, this makes sense. I get it. Here we go. So I love I loved your uh, coverage on what was Mark, the third chapter, when you had the Old Testament uh-huh. uh, theologian on. Yeah. And when you got into the details of the, the findings in old ancient Canaan in the temple yeah. of all the tablets, tablets, right? Is that what all right? Yep. But I, I, that was fascinating because it kind of opened up the door. And now you're putting the other piece of the puzzle together for me tonight. Yep. If you haven't listened to the third chapter of Mark on his podcast, highly recommend it. It's so yeah. good. It was episode number four, I think, on our Mark, on our Mark series. Okay. It's just episode four. It doesn't matter. But, okay. but yeah, we brought in Dr. Broadhurst. So what we've been doing in the series is we've been doing a study of the book. I'll do three, four, five podcasts. And then I'll bring in a biblical scholar to talk about that book. And we brought Dr. Broadhurst in to talk about why is Jesus walking on the sea, right? Why are there all these sea things going on? He's casting out demons and throwing them into the sea because Jesus is dwelling in this ancient Near Eastern world of that's chaos, monsters, and things of that nature. That's exactly what the gospel of Mark is doing. And I knew it, but I didn't know it as well as Dr. Broderick did. I'm like, hey, you come on in and kind of fill, <laughs> us, in, fill us in on this stuff. And so um, that's, that's what we did there. So, all right, I hope that makes sense to you. Now, here's the deal. So Eden is gonna be the key. Eden is on a mountain and it's a yeah. garden mm-hmm. and garden mountains are where the gods dwelt. And that's, that's the ancient Eastern world. And that's where God, our Yahweh dwells. And he's going to rule from that garden mountain and Adam and Eve, they're brought into that garden. And then they send they get kicked out. It's constantly going to be a story of coming into God's presence and getting expelled, coming in, getting expelled, coming in, getting expelled. This is your biblical story. And the goal of actually, I believe was for Eden to expand and fill the earth. As Adam and Eve were faithful and were fruitful and multiply, they then took God's garden presence with them throughout the entirety of the earth. Eden would expand. Eden would fill the earth. And then they messed up. But guess what? The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it fills the earth. God's garden temple presence fills the entirety of the the new creation. So this is the biblical story. So Eden's going to be really important to understand a garden and a temple that makes Adam and Eve priests and that makes them kings because they represent the God as well. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.